We'll open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be isolating our attention today in verses 29 to 30 in our study of this amazing letter of Paul to the believers in Asia Minor, specifically to the Ephesians. We've made our way to a couple of verses that are very familiar, often quoted, but too frequently overlooked, and sadly, under-applied. I have looked at these verses since the very opening of our study of Ephesians, as I've, I read Ephesians over and over in, in this study, and when I get to these, I think, oh no, here it comes. Well, oh no, we're here and we've made it. I've had the whole week to let this verse just jackhammer on my heart. And welcome to my pain this morning. We'll do this together. Ephesians 4, verse 29 and 30. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In 1939, war broke out in Europe after Germany invaded Poland. This began what we call World War II. Then in 1941, Japan attacked the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, in Hawaii, bringing the United States into the war. Japan began a systematic invasion of British, Dutch, and American colonies in the Pacific. And by their own admission, the Japanese were not going to surrender, quote, no matter what. Well, no matter what dissolved in 1945. The United States forced Japan to surrender by utilizing the most feared weapon of war ever developed. It was only a rumor that the U.S. had such a weapon before this moment. On August 6th, 1945, the first atomic bomb was used in warfare. The U.S. plane Enola Gay dropped an atom bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Three days later, on August 9th, a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Altogether, 120,000 people died immediately and countless died later as a result of the bomb and its radiation. After that second bomb, Japan immediately surrendered and the war in the East was over. In the days and in the weeks and in the months and years and even decades following up to today, the most debated issue in discussions of warfare is the use of such massive destructive force. Is it proper, is it right to use such destructive power? The atom bomb is believed to be the most dangerous and powerful force in the world. World summits are held regularly to make sure that this force is somehow kept in check. Well, 
on the authority of God's Word and the pen of the Apostle Paul, may I suggest to you this morning that there is a more powerful force in our world that goes almost entirely unchecked. No summits are held about this force, though there probably should be. Not even an arsenal of nuclear weapons can come close to the life-changing, destructive force of your tongue, of what you say, of the words you speak. Solomon explains that principle like this in Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The words that you and I utter are the most powerful thing about us. Let me say that again. The words that we utter are the most powerful thing about us. Not your physical strength, not your financial wealth, not your occupational position, and certainly not your personality. You can either leverage your words constructively to encourage and change someone's life for the better or destructively in ways that can scourge and scar someone made in the image of God. Lives have been changed by things said. Lives have been touched and changed by things you've said. For the positive and for the negative. The things you say literally have energy. The things you say have power. The things you say have ability. Words do more than communicate information. They actually touch the lives of everyone that you speak to in deep, profound, and in lasting ways. By what you say, you can wound or you can heal or both. You can build up or you can tear down or both. You can honor someone or humiliate someone or both. By what you say, you can literally grant words of life or by what you say, you can grant words of death. In a very real sense, history is a graveyard dug by the power of the tongue. Again, words have unspeakable power, pun intended. More damage and carnage have been done and left by words spoken than any other force in the world, and not even an arsenal, again, of nuclear weapons can come close to the life-changing power that exists behind your teeth this morning. I've been lied to a lot in my life. Big lies, little lies, profound lies, insignificant lies that didn't have a lot of lasting impact. But you may have been told this lie as well. And it's the worst lie I was ever told. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've broken bones. In fact, there was a series that I remember in junior high and high school that I thought I kept the suture industry in business. The pain of those injuries is gone for the most part. There are aches and pains that you have as you get a little older that remind you of earlier injuries, but they're not that bad compared to the painful scars 
of so many things said to me decades ago that hurt then and that hurt now. When I wrote that sentence in my notes, I felt my eyes well up with tears, remembering something that someone said to me when I was in the fourth grade. It pierced my heart. It hurt my feelings so terribly that to think of it even in this moment almost makes me want to cry again. The Bible is full of words about words. I find it interesting that just take any book and you can study what it says about words and you'll find a treasury. But one of the more encyclopedic understanding of the things we say really comes from the half-brother of our Lord, James. Just read the book of James, all five chapters, with a special ear for what does he say about what we say? And I think you'll find it interesting. Just a few examples. This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, say it with me, slow to speak and slow to anger. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, holy, and yet does not bridle, control his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. A man who says, I belong to Christ and who doesn't control his tongue has a worthless faith. James 2.12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Say what you say with the idea there's an accounting coming. James 4.11, do not speak against one another, brethren. It's particular application to speaking against other believers. He who speaks against a brother, judges his brother, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. When you actually speak negatively against another person, you are putting yourself in the place of judging the law, which is a euphemistic way of saying you make yourself out to be God. James 5, 9. How about this one? Do not complain. Pretty simple, isn't it? Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. James 5, 12. Above all, brethren, do not swear by heaven or earth with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Speak the truth. Be a man or woman of your word. And most thoroughly, James says this. You probably thought I skipped it in chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble, we all sin in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, it's unfortunate that that word is perfect, uh, is, is translated perfect. It should be mature, complete. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man able to bridle the whole body as well. Maturity is defined by James as controlling your tongue. Then he gives some illustrations, and we could spend a lot of time on this, but we'll just mention it. If we put bits into the horse's mouth so that we can, they can obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, that they are so great and are driven by strong winds and still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. 
so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. These illustrations are all small, big, small, big. A friend of mine who is an expert in horses says, when you're training a, a horse for, for show, the smaller the bit, the more severe the effect he goes on, the tongue is a fire, the very world of sin, of iniquity. The tongue is set among the members as that which defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. Your life can be and will be directed by, by what you say, he says. Then he gives an illustration. Every species of beasts and birds, reptiles and creatures by the sea is tamed and is being tamed by the human race. I always think of SeaWorld when I, when I uh, read that verse. Um, we used to live in California and would take an annual trip down to SeaWorld. They can make whales, jump, uh, these uh, smaller, uh, the little uh, bugle whales to jump through these hoops and the orcas to come up and get a scratch under the, under the chin and just train these wild beasts. It's incredible. But no one can tame the tongue. James says, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. He says, your tongue can be used for good or for evil, but when it's used for evil, it curses men, it demeans men made in the image of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. No one is all one thing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? No, or nor can salt water produce fresh. Let me read verse 2 again. We all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a mature man able to control or bridle the whole body as well. Take a two-hour trip with someone, and you'll have a pretty accurate handle on what that person's spiritual maturity is simply by listening. What do they say? How do they say what they say? What do they say about what they say is defining. James is not alone in this assessment. Jesus himself said the same thing with even stronger words. Words are so important that we're going to give an account of what we say when we stand before the judgment, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 and following, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the authorized says. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say that every... <laughs> this is almost difficult to read. Jesus says, every careless word that men shall speak, shall, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. How important are your words? For by your words, you shall be justified, saved. And by your words, you shall be condemned. You don't get saved by 
saying different phrases, but what you say indicates your heart. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So your tongue is a pipe to your heart. So the words that we use indicates the spiritual being and health of our hearts. Words are important. Ephesians 4.25, back to our study of Ephesians, launches Paul into the most penetrating practical section of his letter. He's explaining as we go back to chapter 4, verse 1, that critical marker and transition it in the book. He's explaining how to walk worthy of the Lord by outlining the things that we are to put off or put aside and put on. This is what we want to change, what to change, and this is how to change as a Christian. Christians change Christians fundamentally change from their heart, their life, their living, their speaking from pre-conversion to post-conversion. It's how to live or walk no longer as the Gentiles, the unbelievers walk, verse 17 says. So we're in this section, this practical section of put off, put on, put off, put on, put off, put on. And we look in verse 25, we are to tell the truth. In verse 26 and 27, we're to temper our anger. In verse 28, we're to work in order to share. In verses 31 to 32, we're refashion our relationships. And here in verses 29 to 30, as you can see from our title, we are to watch our words. It's interesting because in verses 29 to 30, we move from the work of our hands last week, don't steal, but work to share, the work of our hands to the words of our mouth. There's a decision laid here before us to become an instrument of corrupt, destructive power in people's lives or an instrument of grace and building up in kindness. It's our choice. Verse 29 again. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I tried as hard as I could to make this one sermon. Um, but it's going to be two. Um, we're going to get through verse 29 this week, and then next week we'll come back to grieving the Holy Spirit in verse 30. And it might surprise you, we always talk about what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? You know what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit? Using your words in the wrong way. That's what it's attached to. And it's worthy of its own attention. Max Anders is right when he says, this is the Bible's version of, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. He's right. Psalm 141, verse 3 said, A guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Are, will you commit to do that as a result of applying the verses before us? Stephen Baugh explains, The disciple of Christ must love the Lord with his heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength, and word. Paul now shows just how extensive the claims of Christ are on the lives of his hearers. It extends to the way that they are to talk. Wow. Well, let's look at this verse today and the second one next week, verse 30 next week. 
and we'll outline it this way. Three directions for granting grace with your word. We'll only get to the first two today. Three directions for granting grace with your words. And the reason that we're talking about granting grace, just a little Greek insight, if I can give that to you for a second. Um, see that in the end of verse 29, it says, so that it will give. The, that so that is in Greek, uh, the word henna. It's a, it's a purpose clause. It's, this, is, this is what the purpose of what he just said is. Anytime you see a henna clause, a, a purpose clause, it is a flashing red light of motivation. And the motivation here, the, the reason that we're to use our words graciously and cautiously is so that it will give grace to those who hear. So that's why we're just calling it three directions for granting grace with your words. The first is in verse 29 in the first phrase. Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Refuse. Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. We noted in our last study, verse 28, that the work of the hands must be good and can be used to help the needy. In the next breath, verse 29, Paul says the words of the mouth must also be good so as to build up or edify the hearer. Not corrupt communications, as we'll see, but gracious ones. Now, this is important that we do a little bit of a, of a deep dive into this word. Unwholesome word. Corrupting talk is the ESV's version of it. Corrupting talk, unwholesome words. Those are nice, sweet English designations of what this word is. Sapros. Let me read to you from my Greek dictionary. It refers to fish, fruit, or other products that are spoiled, rotten, and putrid. He uses the word metaphorically here, attaching it to unwholesome or foul speech. Now, I don't want to get in your kitchen literally, <laughs> although we're about to take a little tour in there. Have you ever, I'm sure you have, and it's not any... I'm sure this is no fault of anyone's mom or wife, but it happens that a piece of fruit just kind of gets lost in the refrigerator. It gets behind something. And it kind of um, develops its own personality, as we would say. And you didn't know it was there. And then you open the refrigerator and you, <laughs> something's wrong. And you look and you look and then you find it. Now, I have done that, and it's certainly no fault of my dear wife, Kim, but sometimes fruit plays hide-and-seek and wins in our refrigerator. And I have seen a piece of fruit that's rotted and putrefied that is this word. It liquefies, it stenches, it grows mold. It's awful. Or maybe, maybe you've forgotten about that bag of potatoes and the in the bottom of your cabinet and it gets in the back and starts growing things, liquefying. It's awful. I mean, doesn't that bring up some pretty graphic images? That's the word he uses. Don't use those kind of words that have those kind of effects and consequences. 
not pretty sights to the eyes or the nose, and you certainly wouldn't want to eat spoiled food. I hesitate to tell you this, but I will because I am. I was a single man, and we, we had four roommates, three, four of us who lived there, three roommates, and we, we kind of had this system in the, in the refrigerator that we, we thought mark, demarcated people's things when I was single and living as a single man. Uh, if you have your own carton of milk, you really, and don't judge me, you don't need a glass. You, you want some milk? I mean, it's going to be, it's only yours, right? Some of you ladies are looking at me in ways you've never looked at me before. You know, you just lip it, you just chug it. Well, I remember one time I came in and mindlessly opened the refrigerator and grabbed my jug of milk and threw that thing up. That could mean a few things. Um, took a big chug. And I noticed that my milk had the consistency of cottage cheese. It was wretched. I couldn't get that taste out of my mouth for about six weeks, it felt like. It was awful. That's the idea here. It's putrefied. It's rotten. It's foul. That's how Paul describes the nature of words spoken discouragingly. Proverbs 10, 19 where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. If you don't want to speak rotten, foul words, maybe you should just be quiet. Proverbs eleven twelve: he who despises his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is counted as prudent. So we'll talk about the choice of to say the right things rather than the wrong things, but before that choice is made, we need to decide to say nothing rather than the wrong things not to speak them. Let no unwholesome word. The point is simple. If you talk too much, you can't help but sin. How can that be? It could be that the more you talk, you hear yourself, and the more you like what you hear, and it's pride. Or maybe it's the more you talk, the less truthful you become, and you run out of things to say. But let's just, let's pull the car over just for a minute, Okay. Let's consider some of the ways that unwholesome, rotten words come out of our mouths. What is the poison, the rotten nature of the words of our mouth, of our tongue? Well, I think it's things like these. This is not a complete exhaustive list, but it's things like this. First of all, gossip. You know what gossip is? It's saying something behind a person's back you would never say to their face. Gossip. Flattery, that's saying something to someone's face you would never say behind their back. Just the opposite. So we can gossip and we can flatter. Exaggeration, stretching the truth. 
But the preacher is called being evangelistic, somebody said. Overstating, understating, exaggerating. Criticism. Criticism is basically elevating ourselves to the position of judge. We know what's right and wrong, and we'll tell you about it if you listen. We criticize. We know what's right, we know what's wrong, and we're happy to tell you about it. Complaining. Complaining is the sin of the tongue against God himself, which confesses dissatisfaction with his plans, his provision in our lives. If God works to get all things together for good, all things together for good, and we complain about it, who are we complaining against? I have to say this one. Even We'll come back to this in chapter 5, verse 4. Cussing, cursing, or swearing. I don't even know what it's called anymore. I hear all three. Cussing, cursing, or swearing. Linguist expert Richard Nordquist writes, quote, A swear word is a word or phrase that's generally considered blasphemous, obscene, vulgar, or otherwise offensive. These are also called bad words, obscenities, expletives, dirty words, profanities, and four-letter words. The act of using a swear word is known as swearing or cursing, end quote. We'll come back to this specifically in verse 4 of chapter 5. If you want to look down the page, there must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving, giving of thanks. That filthiness has to do with cursing and cussing. Do you, do you have a past of saying foul language and it slips out from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we deal with that in our hearts. It should never find expression. Another one, lying. That lying is the most scary of all of them because John 8, 44 says, your father, the de devil, lies, and if you, the devil is the father of lies, and if you lie, you're of him, you're his child, and he's your father. We look carefully at that back in verse 25. And I gotta say it, uh, I'm gonna admit, when I put this in my notes, I, I had a little bit of fear and trepidation, and I feel it even now. Social media post. Those are expressions of your words. God views your social media as the very words of your lips. Everything you post, every comment you make, everything you like or dislike, every article that you link to, you are accountable to the Lord for If the Lord were to judge you based on your social media presence, Twitter, Facebook, all the other expressions, Instagram, of what you say, what you quote, what you link to, what you comment, what you defend, 
How would that stand at heaven's court? And if you feel like, you know, God and I are the dynamic duo, I'm Batman, he's Robin, and we're defending his truth, watch your heart. Remember, James said the tongue ignites our iniquity in what we, and what we say defines our character. It exposes our hearts. It's interesting to note when we look at let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth that why James calls the tongue a deadly snake. It's untamable. The tongue's influence is scary as it is amazing. Now, look back at the text for a second because there's a word we can't miss, okay? I skipped over it. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But notice this is no, zero. There is a zero tolerance policy with the Lord. He doesn't say, do a little better with your talking. He says, let zero words come out of your mouth that are unwholesome, that are rotten, that are discouraging. Zero tolerance policy with the Lord. Now, if you say, well, I'm going to just excise all of the bad things I say and the bad ways I say them, and you can go on and on, the exaggeration, criticism, complaining, cussing, cursing, swearing, lying, social media posts, gossip, and flattery. What do you say? What's left to talk about? Refuse to speak rotten, discouraging words. The second direction for granting grace with your words, commit to speak gracious, encouraging words. Now, you got to always be careful with the alwayses, the onlys, and the nevers. Sometimes those are appropriate words. You just have to be careful with them. Notice that Paul says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And now he says, but only such a word. See the comprehensive nature of that? Only, this is the only thing we're to say. Only such, literally, as is good, or such a word, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Don't miss that word only. This is the only, only category for our speech. Grace-giving, kind, encouraging words. The commitment to speak is qualified here. As is good for edification, good edifying words carry with, with them the awareness and the sensitivity of the effects of your speech on a person. Part of this whole verse is to take a step back and to realize that what you say matters and that it's not just how your words make you feel by saying them, it's how they impact the hearer that matters. It's being aware. Paul implies that we are to be ever aware of our words, what they're doing, and that they are doing something in the ears of the lives of the people who hear us. Are you aware that your words have impact? They do. I could go to thousands more illustrations, but again, what I was told in the fourth grade 
still stings. Let's break down the words in this command. Good for edification. Literally, build up as a positive construction. Building as a construction, it's, it's, a, it's an architectural word. Building up as in construction. Every word we speak is a construction project in the mind of the hearers. They're to be positive, constructive ideas conveyed by our words, or they will be destructive. There's two kinds of work in construction. There's demolition and there's construction. Demolition is devastating on purpose. Construction is positive on purpose. This positive call has an implication on the other side. If we are only to speak words good for building up, then we are never to speak words that tear down. Oh, the implications for our marriage is incredible, isn't it? I was thinking about this last night. I was watching a little college football. My wife was doing some work over on the chair to my left. And I started to say something that was a little bit snarky. It was in jest and fun. And I, I, and I, I felt the formulation coming out. And my computer's in my lap with this. And, and, and I, I remember asking, because I was right here going over this, is this going to build her up or tear her down? And you know what my first thought was? It's just a joke. She'll get it. And she might. This doesn't put away joking and, and, and uh, understood kinds of sarcasm that we all enjoy with each other that are not truly tearing down. It doesn't preclude that. But it does beg the question, do, do you ask the question, how's this going to land? How about with our parenting? your employee, your employer, your neighbor. Again, your online presence. Is it building up or is it tearing down? Listen, even if it's true and it tears down, you're better off not saying it. God can take care of himself and righteousness. According to the need of the moment. This means you assess what you say contextually. Will, will what I say be necessary and needful? It's another way of saying if you don't have anything to say that's positive, you shouldn't say it. And remember, you don't have to say everything that's in your mind or heart. Again, awareness is the key. Learning to ask, is this the best thing to say? The right time to say it. And look at that last phrase, that it may give grace to the hearer. That's that henna clause. Purpose, to deliver grace to those who hear. Does what I say actually demonstrate and portray grace? What is grace? Unmerited favor. Does it give grace and kindness? There's a big debate on whether this is the grace of God or just the grace that we have. I think it's both. It will give grace to those who hear. It'll be gracious, encouraging, lifting up, building up. The parallel passage in Colossians 4, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt 
so that you will know how you should respond to each person. It's interesting that in both contexts, Paul uses food words. In Ephesians, he says, don't let it be rotten like foul, rotten fruit or fish. And on the positive side, let it be like salt that in that day with no refrigeration would season, would preserve, had wonderful effects. Albert Leckie writes, one might never know the deep need in the heart of the hearer, and yet one's speech must minister to such need. Instead of the word spoken becoming an instrument to corrupt, it must be an instrument of giving grace. Are your words a dispenser of grace or a sewage pipe for destruction in someone's life? Just a little aside for a minute. Parents, I, I think one of the things that we, we should work most on, especially when our kids are younger, is this. How do they speak to the brother and sister? How do they speak to you? Listen, I had a moment that rocked my world. I, I, I don't remember what age I was young, six, seven, eight years old. And I said something snarky to my mom. And my dad grabbed me by both shoulders, sat me in his chair, that was a big deal, sat me in his chair, in his chair, and he said this, boy, and there was, I think I've told you, there was levels of my dad talking to me. He said, Ricky, that was affectionate. Richard, I was in trouble. Richard Lloyd, I was going to get it. Richard Lloyd Holland, I was in big time. And if we went past all that and just said, boy, that was the worst. This was a boy moment. Boy, you will never speak to my wife like that again. Whoa. But that's my mom, was my first thought. But you know what he was telling me? That that relationship was more important than mine. And it made an impact. He was right. Now, just a quick preview of next week. Beware of speaking saddening, consequential words. You see, saddening to who and consequential to who. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the who is affected by our language. But that's for next week. Just a couple of reflections, maybe some takeaways for us. Looking at these words in this verse. Would you commit yourself? Would you try to train your heart to say this? Why am I about to say this? Why am I saying this? And we'll come back to that motivation with our ever-present Holy Spirit next week. Let me give you some practical suggestions. Number one, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. <laughs> James 1.19. Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Washington Irving remarks, a sharp tongue is the only edged tool that gets sharper with constant use. He's right. Be slow to speak. Again, Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. He who closes his lips is counted prudent. Some of us just need to stop talking. 
Are you willing to go on a, a negativity diet and splurge on a feast of encouragement? Be slow to speak. Secondly, when you do speak, make it your aim to speak of people's sins and struggles only to their faces and only of their virtues behind their backs. That's how you give grace. When you speak, make it your aim to speak of people's sin only to their faces, their sin and struggles only to their faces and only of their virtues behind their backs. Which brings us to the obvious and a third takeaway. Make your speech the first focus of your sanctification. You want to be holy? Work on your tongue. Make your speech, the, what your words are, the first focus of your sanctification. I think it's interesting that when the Lord wanted to make Isaiah more holy in Isaiah 6, after that great affirmation, holy, 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 that he hears from heaven, he sent one of the seraphim, the angels, with a burning coal, after Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips, and the angel touched his lips. He understood that from the abundance of his heart, his mouth spoke. And this all leads to number four. Remember, remember the power of your tongue, the power of your words. You can change the course of someone's life by the simple utterance of your mouth. Death and life truly are in the power of your words. And the primary motivation is not just to help people and not to hurt people, but it is not to grieve the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at in verse 30 next week. A final note, the kind of repentance... This kind of repentance, rather, demands the work of God. You can't just will yourself into being a better talker. Only God, only the Holy Spirit can make this change. Only because you've committed your life to follow Jesus, that He's your Master, your Lord, your Savior, your friend. Only then and only, only that will motivate you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it impacts the things you say and how you say them, the time that you say them, your wisdom about your words. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's not your master, your Lord, your Savior, there is no hope. You're going to be a rotten, poisonous speaker of words that that either slay people or plant seeds in someone of slaying. So when the psalmist says in Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Will you ask God to put that guard over you? And he's going to say, yes, I will. But this implies you leaning into your own self-control. By your words, Jesus said, you will be justified. That doesn't mean the words save you. It means the words reveal if you're truly a Christian or not. 
Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Father, your instruction here is so clear and yet so difficult to apply. Forgive us for the words we've spoken that we can never take back, but you can assuage their influence. Father, if we need to go back to make something right with something we've said, give us the courage and the fortitude to do so. Grant parents wisdom in training their little ones what to say and what not to say. Grant us courage as fellow brothers and sisters to correct and confront, to discourage discouragement and to encourage encouragement. You've been so kind, so kind to us in the gospel. How can we be anything but encouraging to those around us? Apply the conviction of your spirit in specifics that he sees fit. In Jesus' name, amen.